go ahead and open up our Bibles to the book of Ephesians. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're just going to be looking at one verse. We have just finished walking through the book of Thessalonians. I think I can say for the whole body how sweet that was. Yes, well, one person agrees. <clears throat> so, uh, a little over, no, a little less than four years ago, I came to serve as the senior pastor of this church. And uh, in that first year of service, me and the elders and a number of members uh, were very intentional about trying to build the DNA of this church. We spent a year really trying to hammer home what it means from God's word to be a church. God was kind and he blessed those labors and I think the DNA of our church is very strong. We know who we are and why we are the way that we are for the most part. Having said that, as I look out over the congregation today or I look through the membership directory, I recognize that a large percentage of the people who are members now were not here during that very formative first year. And I recognize that a number of the people who were here then are no longer here. And so what that means is that a large number of us, a good percentage of the congregation, has inherited that DNA and perhaps agrees with it, would want to champion it, but, but may not fully understand all of it. My fear is that a, a, a large percentage of the congregation may not exactly know why we do what we do the way that we do it, even if you agree with it. But since we believe that ministry in the local church is first and foremost the responsibility of members, and since we believe that the buck stops in matters of the gospel with the membership, it's very important that you guys not only agree with the way that we do things in the church, but that you understand why we do things the way that we do. Why do we preach expositionally? Why do we walk through a book of the Bible instead of just culling stuff from all over the Bible and packaging it together as a sermon? Why do we so frequently use the modifier meaningful whenever we go on to talk about church membership? Why do we practice church discipline? Isn't that unloving? Why do we not do evangelism in our church the way that they did evangelism in your last church or in your grandma's church? Why don't we divide up our Sunday school classes? And we will have Sunday school classes once again. Why do we divide them up? Why, excuse me, why do we not divide them up by age and gender? Like perhaps the Baptist church that you grew up in. Why do we have elders in the church and not just a pastor and then a group of deacons who kind of run everything? Well, these are the things that we're going to be addressing over the next 12 weeks together as we look at God's word to answer the question why we do what we do the way that we do it in the local church. But before we get into all of those specifics, we need to take an introductory sermon, that's this morning's sermon, and we need to ask the question, why should we care so much about the church in the first place? Why does it matter how we think about these things? Why does the church of Jesus Christ matter so much? Should we really take 12 weeks out of our life together, 12 Sunday mornings, why should we take 12 of those to think about these things in specificity? 
Well, because the church matters. And I think you'll agree with me by the end of this sermon. So let me pray, and then we will dive in. Father God, help us to see what you see, to love what you love, and to be obedient to your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. If you were to survey the average American Christian and ask them what they think about the church, I think you'd be surprised at some of the answers. Is the church an institution, or is it something less than that? Is the church to be found in a building, or wherever two Christians just happen to cross paths, you know? Uh, You ladies find each other in the aisle of a supermarket, two guys find each other at Home Depot, I'm guessing that'd be Spencer and Greg Miller, you know? If they happen to meet in the aisle of Home Depot and they talk about Jesus stuff, is that a church? Most American Christians probably wouldn't know how to answer that question. Is the church necessary? Or is it just the remnant of a bygone era? An outmoded way of thinking? Many Christians believe that the church of Jesus Christ has been corrupted. They think that the only way for the fires of pure religion to burn is if we remove them from the blanket that is the institutional church. These Christians see a relationship with Jesus as the fire and the church as the blanket that suffocates out the flames of this pure religion. Many Christians are also suspicious of the church because they've been hurt in the church. They just don't really know if they can open themselves back up to being hurt again. Other Christians are not quite cynical or suspicious, but they're just apathetic. They just don't really know what to think about the church. They just kind of don't care about the church. Maybe they were raised, uh, discipled in Christ in a college ministry where that college ministry meeting kind of replaces the church. Or maybe they grew up as Christians in a church where youth group was the big thing and they never actually did church. They just did something that was a substitute for the church. And so they never came to value the church. Then they grow up, they try to be Christians in the world, they have a family, and then the church just, it just doesn't find a place in their lives. Still other Christians seek to love the church, but they do so for all the wrong reasons. These Christians love the church as long as the music is exactly their style, as long as the demographics are exactly balanced along racial or political lines. They love the church as long as the social vibes are in sync with their felt needs, as long as the emotional pitch of Sunday service is exactly what they think it should be. They love the church as long as she agrees with their political views caters to their stage of life demographic, and has the right coffee. By the way, there's a cappuccino in the back for anyone who wants one after service. So what about you? If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, how do you feel about the church? If I had to guess, I'd say that most of us in this room are here because we value the church. I would use stronger language. I would say that most of us are here because we love the church. At our worst, I would say that some of us are struggling to love the church, and we're not quite there yet, but we're on our way, and we're, we're on the journey. 
We're learning to love what Jesus loves, and so the church is becoming an increasingly important part of our lives. Praise God for that. That being said, it's probably safe to say that many, if not most of us, still do not grasp the significance of the church. That is to say, we do not grasp the cosmic and eternal significance of what the church of Jesus Christ is. Even if we can perceive the glory of the church, it does not bear down on us like it should. It is not weighty to us like it should be. It is, it, the church is resting lightly on our hearts when in fact it should be weighing down on us like the heaviest object in the universe outside of God himself. So by God's help, I hope to help us feel the weight of that a little bit more after this morning's sermon. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, please. Verse 10, just one verse this morning. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Friends, you should know that the God that we serve loves to show off. He's a show off. He loves to flex. He loves to display his glory, to put all of himself out there and to have us go, hmm, that's good. That's great. That's beautiful. You see this over and over again in scripture. God is constantly saying, listen, I do what I do the way that I do it so that I will receive glory. I could spend an hour going through text with you. I'm just going to show you one from Isaiah 47, verses 9 through 11. For my name's sake, that means so that my name would be looked upon in a certain way, so that I would be glorified. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I've tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake. He says it twice. I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. These texts could be multiplied. But over and over again, the Bible tells us that God created mankind for his glory. The Bible created the nation of Israel for his glory. The God saves The God of the Bible saves his people for his glory and so on. Friends, here's what you need to know about God. He is the most worthy being in the universe. He is perfect in every way. He is holy beyond comprehension. He is beautiful beyond description. He shines with a glory that is brighter than a trillion suns all casting their light down in the same direction. 
And because he loves us, he broadcasts that glory beyond himself. The greatest gift that God gives to us as his creation is to manifest his glory, is to broadcast his glory, is to radiate his beauty and his worth outside of himself and into our midst. Now, how does God do that? Well, he does it in a variety of ways. The most vivid, stunning, and accurate, vivid, stunning, and accurate communication of God's glory is in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Listen to how the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus in relation to God and his glory. He says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So in the same way that light emanates out from the white hot core of the sun's burning fires, so too does the glory of God radiate out in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now we also know from Scripture, as well as from our own consciences, that nature communicates God's glory, right? The psalmist tells us in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Now that kind of speaks about God's glory in a very general way, right? Like nature just, it's telling you God's there and He's glorious. But there's more. Romans 1, 19 through 20. For what may be known about God is plain to them, and them is rebellious creation. Because God has made it plain. Well, how has God made himself plain to all of rebellious creation? In this way. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from his workmanship, so that men are without excuse. What we see here is that God, in creating the universe, in leaving his thumbprint on creation, communicates his glory to us, but not just in a very general way. There's a surprising and perhaps unexpected level of specificity in God's communication here. God doesn't just communicate the fact that he exists through nature. He communicates the specific attribute of his power in nature. There's more. In Romans 9, God tells us that the ultimate purpose for both salvation and reprobation is so that he would be glorified for very specific attributes of his personhood. Romans 9, 22 through 23. What if God, intending to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the vessels of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Friends, you can clearly see that God is in the business of showing off his glory. And he shows off various aspects of his glory, various attributes, 
through different mediums. There's something about nature that communicates the power of God. There's something about salvation that communicates the fullness of God's mercy. There's something about hell that communicates the fullness of God's wrath. And God wants to show off every single one of his attributes. There's no part of God that he wants to keep hidden so that we can't see it and magnify him for his worth. He's constantly, in a thousand, million, billion different ways, putting on display various aspects of his glory. So what does any of that have to do with the church in Ephesians 3.10? Well, I'm glad you asked. In this morning's text, Paul tells us that God is showing off the attribute of his wisdom, and he's doing it through the church. Let's go back and read it again and see if that that makes sense, that God is showing off his wisdom through the church. Verse 10, so that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, broadcast, displayed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, who are these rulers and authorities that God is broadcasting his wisdom to? Well, I think that they're the same people that back in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul talks about as those who are having dominion over the sons of disobedience. It's the same words in the Greek. This basically refers to the enemies of God, particularly, spiritually speaking, Satan and his minions. Now, I want you to see something in this verse, a contrast that's built into the verse that that you may not immediately see. I want us to see it. It is the contrast between between the wisdom of Satan and his minions, the, the wisdom of the enemies of God, and the wisdom of God. So in order to help you see that, we need to revisit the beginning of the Bible. Turn with me back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. I'm sure you'll remember, uh, excuse me, Genesis 3. I'm sure you remember that in Genesis 3, Satan is depicted as a serpent, which communicates something about his desire to be crafty, to be clever, to try to outwit, outmaneuver. This is what we read there in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, who is Satan, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What we see here in this verse is that Satan has an intricate scheme to deceive mankind, to thwart the wisdom of God in creation. I know, it makes me upset too. Oh, it's so hard being a kid. You see here that Satan has a plan to undo what God has done. And un- <laughs> get it all out, get it all out. I actually felt like that this morning when I woke up. Amber had to hold me and walk me out of the bedroom. 
back on track. Here we go. Uh, you know, the thing is, is that in this scene, Satan was craftier than Adam and Eve. He was wiser than the wisdom of that very innocent first couple in the garden. And he deceived them. They bought into the wisdom of Satan, and that brought death. It brought separation from both God and from other human beings. It brought fracture and pain and enmity and strife. And in that moment, when Satan's scheme worked, when his craftiness seemed to have effect, the rulers and authorities, the powers and principalities, they could have thought that their wisdom was wiser than the wisdom of God. And then as time progressed, God didn't immediately come down and crush his enemies. He didn't immediately come down and snuff out Satan. Things continued along. And God's plan of salvation, the way it was working in the world, was almost imperceptible. You know, so you're going to call this guy Abraham and you're going to make a promise to him that one day he's going to be the father of many nations? Sin and death and destruction and pain and chaos and sickness continue to rule? The enemies of God could have very easily thought for many thousands of years that their wisdom was better than the wisdom of God. They could have thought that their scheming was successful. Well, little did they know that God would one day come and put their wisdom to shame and show it to be what it really is, folly. One day, God in his infinite wisdom, in his manifold wisdom, you see in chapter, uh, back in Ephesians, when it talks about God's wisdom and it calls his wisdom his manifold wisdom, That word manifold was often used in ancient times to talk about very intricate designs that were put into various kinds of clothing. So that means that God's wisdom is not just kind of a blah, just a plain white tee kind of wisdom, you know, like the white underwear kind of wisdom. This is high quality, very intricate, you like that? Very well designed and patterned wisdom. That's the kind of wisdom that God has. So this this manifold wisdom of God inclined him to send another Adam, the second Adam. And this second Adam who came, Jesus, he is wisdom personified. And he came to rescue, rescue all the sons of Adam from the sin of their first transgression. And in so doing, God reconciled man back to himself. But not just that. He didn't just fix the problem that exists between us and him. He also fixed the problem between you and me. He not only reconciled man back to God, but he also reconciled man back to one another. Because of what the second Adam would accomplish, because of his wisdom, no longer would there be male and female, slave or free, Jew or Greek. No, because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, all of humanity would be able to find true peace and reconciliation in Jesus. But that was not the final phase of the plan. Mission accomplished? Not quite yet. See, God in his infinite wisdom, he had a plan to not only accomplish this reconciliation, but then to also put that on display so that all of his enemies could see that their plans have come to nothing. And that is why he created the church. In the church, all those people who shouldn't be together, who should be at war with one another, who shouldn't have any peace, 
they come together and they gather in one place at one time. They sing songs to God with one voice. They pray with the same united desires. They've been saved by the one true gospel. They're indwelt by the one true Holy Spirit. And in this visible display, the wisdom of God is shown to be greater than the wisdom of Satan. In the church, God is thumbing his nose at those who thought that they could be craftier than he could be. When we as Christians, when we are obedient to God's good design, to gather together, that's literally what the church means, by the way. It means to gather. If you were to be reading Greek, you'd read the gathering. When you would read it in verb form, you would read it to gather. So you can't not, you can't not be together and be a church. To be a church, you have to be a, get, a gathering. <laughs> when we gather together as a church, we display this wisdom of God. Do you understand, friends, the significance of what we do here every Sunday morning? I know that familiarity can breed contempt, and I know that we can get into a rhythmic pattern where it just seems like we're kind of going through the motions. Oh, I've sung that song before, and I've, I've prayed this prayer before, and I've heard this message before. I know these truths. Friends, you cannot even begin to comprehend without God's help the significance of what we do here every single Sunday morning. The church of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is the most significant institution in the history of the world. The United States is to the church what a lit match is compared to the burning glory of the sun. Denominational structures are compared to the church like a grain of sand compared to all the carbon matter in the universe. Armies and councils, courts and tribunals, royal families and presidential cabinets, they are like a mist in the air hanging ever so lightly. But the church of Jesus Christ is like a tidal wave crashing down over the annals of history. And its force is directed by the hand of God. Do you understand the privilege that you have to partake in this divine drama? Men in the church, if you're wondering why I'm always beating the drum for you to aspire to maybe be an elder one day, it's because I want you to see that there's nothing else in this world that you could possibly aspire to that could accomplish as much eternal good as leading God's people in these eternal purposes. I don't want you to spend your days going to work, coming home, playing video games, and then waking up and doing it all over again. You have to spend your life some way. Why not spend it on the things that matter most? Serving God's people, serving your family, serving those who need help. It's a privilege to be able to carry out the ministry that you have as members of the church. And it's a privilege that we have to serve as elders of the church. And it's a shame that this privilege is often viewed as a burden. The church matters. 
And if you love the glory of God as much as God loves the glory of God, then the thing that you should want most in the world is to see God's glory radiated out to the universe through the church. And yet the followers of Jesus, those people who literally take his name to be their name, Christians, those who should be the most hungry for the glory of God, we often treat the church like a matter of indifference. We treat the church like a for-profit business. We treat the church like a country club. I pay my dues. I I expect to be served in this way and that way. And if not, I'll take my dues and go somewhere else. We treat the church like a therapist's office. I'll be here as long as you can supply whatever emotional needs I have to be fixed. You know, if we treated our husbands and wives the way that we treat the church, I think we'd quickly find ourselves divorced. Now, in this local church, I know, I'm not trying to beat you down, I know that I'm preaching to the choir. I love being the pastor of this church. I know how much you guys love the church. I know how much a lot of you sacrifice to be here, to be meaningfully involved in the church. I know how far some of you drive to be here every single Sunday morning. I know that. But I want to make sure that we understand that the way that we exist as Sixth Avenue Community Church can either amplify God's glory or diminish it. We can get in the way, we can muffle God's glory if we do not rightly order ourselves as the church. Let me explain. Have you, uh, like on your phone, have you ever tried to like cover up the sound that's coming out of it? I remember this one time I was on staff at a church and I was at a, a denominational meeting and the, the business for the day was pretty intense. It was, it was a pretty weighty session that was about to begin. And, uh, and right as we were about to slip into a time of prayer, I was trying to slip my phone into my pocket. And of course, right as I did, I hit play on my iTunes. And at full volume, started blasting some very loud Christian rap music. They didn't know that. I had tattoos. They were certain I was not a Christian at that point. But, and it's just blaring as loud <coughs> as they can possibly blare. And immediately, I just go to put my hand over the bottom of the phone and cover up the sound. It didn't work. I tried to hit pause, but I couldn't get the screen to activate. So I'm simultaneously trying to pause it and cover the... And so finally, I just run out of the room in shame and embarrassment, tail between my legs, Yeah, that is what we very often do in the church. We muffle the glory of God that is meant to be blasted out from our midst, from our gatherings, from our existence. Now listen, here's the thing. The glory of God is still going to come through. It's always going to come through. The glory of God is unstoppable in the same way that that sound from my speakers could only be muffled but not silenced with my hand over the speaker. The glory of God in the earth is something that he has purposed to come to pass since eternity's past, and there is no stopping it, my friends. But 
as his children, as those who are hungry to see him glorified on the earth. Remember, hallowed be thy name, right? We should not want to muffle it in the slightest. And we should want to do everything that we can possibly do to amplify it to the max. And what I want you to know this morning is that the way that we conduct ourselves as a church can accomplish one of those two ends, one of those two purposes. The way that God's word is preached matters for how God's glory is communicated in the church. The way that we practice church membership or church discipline or don't practice church discipline, the way that we carry out and conduct evangelism, the way that we do any number of different things in the life of the church, from praying on a Sunday morning to hang out together as a community, to serving the poor and needy in our midst. All of these things can either amplify the glory of God from Sixth Avenue Community Church or it can muffle God's glory in this body. Far too many churches act as if God's word has nothing to say about how we conduct ourselves as a body. They act as if God has saved us and then commanded us to be a church and then not given us any instructions for how we're supposed to do that. Like going to buy a piece of Ikea furniture and then you get it home, there's 10,000 moving parts and no instructions. That's how people think that God has left the church. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. God's word tells us everything that we need to know in order to be the body of Christ. And my hope is that over the next 12 weeks, we will see that with pristine clarity and so order ourselves according to his will. My prayer is that over the next three months, this church will be more equipped to defend the church, to serve the church, and to sustain the church for the glory of God. Ephesians 3.21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Please stand as we sing together. Uh, The church is one foundation.